Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, a interview podcast that today is not an interview podcast. Lewis, what are we doing today? Hey Kyle, in this episode, we wanted to do a bit of a semester in review. We both just finished up with finals and we prepared three takeaways from the semester each, three lessons about life or experiences we had that we reflected on and want to kind of crystallize into compact lessons that we can take away, think about in the future and hopefully share with you all. We're gonna go back and forth a list of three each, kind of alternate and have a little conversation. You wanna start us off with your first one? Sure, absolutely, Lewis. So my first one is a principle I think that most people are aware of. It's it's about networks and how it's not what you know, it's who you know. And it's not it's not the information that you have about a topic that's going to make you successful in it. It's how you're going to leverage that information with other people that you know, right? So I think that it's more important to get to know your professors and to develop a relationship with them than it is to learn every single word that's in the book. Because at a certain point, I think it's a lot more valuable to have that relationship than it is to get a 100% in that class. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And then going along with that, I think this ties together well is another like uh, motif that I've found is It's not what you say, it's how you say it. So it's not the words that you say to somebody that they're going to remember. You know, like I can't remember anything that a lot of people that have made an impact on me have, you know, directly said. I can't remember the facts. You can't pull quotes. Yeah, exactly. But unless we record a podcast, in which case you can pull quotes now. Exactly. That's that's awfully convenient. That's awfully convenient. Uh Uh-huh. And other people can do that too. And then they're learning from our podcast. See how that works. Um, but I, I, I don't remember what they said. I remember how I felt when they were talking to me. And I think that's true for everybody. So if you're able to elicit an emotion out of somebody with the way that you say something, that is a lot better off. Or you, you are a lot better off doing that than having a Rolodex of facts that you can just spit at somebody. Yeah. I think something that makes me think about is like marketing, just classic marketing one-on-one stuff about, you know, people buy on emotion and then rationalize with logic, but it's really the fact that whether or not your product or whatever your service is, is memorable to them and they want to buy it comes from, like I just said, do they want to buy it? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you make an emotional appeal to them that compels them to want to purchase it? And then once they've made that decision, Then they go in to your fact sheet and your sales letter to talk to other people to have kind of like a little personal database of information to justify that decision. So they don't look like they're just an impulsive shopper, even though that's totally what happens. You decide you want something and then you look for the facts to tell yourself it was a good decision. And I think that's kind of that same just process or the same, you know, Simon Sinek, start with why type thing. Mm -hmm. That's just how we think and how we work. You make an impression on the emotional level, that's the more primitive, lower level in terms of has more control over our lives. That makes the bigger impression. And then it's the actual logic that people use because that's easier to express to other people. Mm-hmm. But definitely, I think that's a good one. Yeah. So like what you're talking about with marketing is like you're doing that in conversation to other people, right? You're trying to get people to feel something in both marketing and when you're talking to them 
And when they feel that thing that you want them to feel, they're more likely to purchase, come back to it. And then they'll decide whether or not what they think, they'll decide whether or not they think what you're saying is true afterward. Or whether or not they want to continue a relationship with you in the future necessarily, mm-hmm. or if they think that there's value or enjoyable, right? Just hang out with you. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna switch to my first one now. Go for it. Because it's opposite on this in some principle, but not because this yours is a very kind of emphasizing the qualitative aspect of things. Whereas mine's bringing about a quality, a quantitative idea. It's the idea that if you want to be serious about any goal, you need to measure what you're doing. You know, there's a million sayings about this. What gets measured gets managed. What gets measured gets improved. All those kind of little quippy sayings about this truth. But my example from this would be weight loss and weight gain. I've always been wanting to get bigger, get, you know, bulkier, get better in the gym. And I've kept track in the sense, you know, I go on my Apple watch and I press start workout or I make sure I get a couple of protein shakes in. Uh, but it wasn't until January that I started actually tracking my calories, tracking my macros and making sure I got the exact amount of protein and calories they told me to get in that I started seeing results. And when I say results, I mean like nothing like I'd ever seen before in years. I mean, in two years of trying this, I probably gained like five to 10 pounds just from every so often getting that extra protein shakedown. But then in January, when I put in my height, my weight, my average exercise level, and then every single thing I ate during the day until I hit 3,500, 3,600, 3,700 calories, 200 grams of protein, 400 carbs, 100 grams of fat, I actually started seeing results. And when I hit that 30 days in a row, 60 days in a row, 90 days in a row, I literally put on about 25 pounds in seven or eight weeks, which is just nuts. Um, two years of trying for not being serious about it, I 10 pounds, right? I was lifting the same way. wasn't necessarily any smarter about my lifting. I would always try to go progressive overload at the gym, make things heavier, but I would never feel stronger because I never ate enough. Uh, and I think there's some transfer here to some other things. So what were you eating during that time? That's funny uh, that you ask that. So at the time, doing a high dairy, you could call it diet, lots of milk. It's called gallon of milk a day. I decided not to do the entirety of it. I kind of did half a gallon of milk a day because the principle is liquids are a lot easier to send than solids because you get full, but you can still drink. So lots of milk, lots of protein powder, mass gainer towards the end, tons of eggs. I mean, there is a day in my computer science class where I sat in the front (laughs) row with a Tupperware of seven hard boiled eggs and put them one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, until I hit seven. And I kind of thought my professor was going to kick me out of class or just being that obnoxious. <laughs> and I mean, the classmates were starting to get annoyed. People kind of gave me that look like, what are you about to pull out of your backpack? It's about to smell like microwave salmon in this math class. Lots of salmon, tilapia and rice. That was another big I specifically recipe. remember seeing you later in the day after you had slammed those six hard boiled eggs and you were complaining a lot about your stomach. So yeah, you got to put some carbs <laughs> in before you house a house a dozen eggs. But sure. Now a couple other things I would do. A sleeve of saltines with a can of tuna at the end of the day. So that would be pretty good. Or I do tuna eggs. So you take like three scrambled eggs and then throw a can of tuna in the pan. So what you're saying that. is that you have really high standards. Uh, high standards for the amount of food I want to eat in a day, not high standards for how it tastes or anything like that. So point is, if you are serious about getting better at anything, you should break it down like this, right? Come up with a detailed plan that if you follow it will work and then follow it, right? That's like as simple as it is. But if you don't follow through on those steps, you're actively planning to fail. I mean, I have it written down right here on a piece of tape, fail to plan, plan to fail. That's Mm -hmm. just a truism. 
And I experienced that firsthand. Things, something I've wanted to accomplish for years that I never took seriously, I was able to accomplish in a matter of months by taking it seriously. So that's my takeaway from that one. And then I came I home for spring break, stopped tracking, and lost 16 pounds in six weeks. <laughs> because my body was so tired of overeating. That's hilarious. And I, th- I think it's very true in like every aspect of life. I think that like one clear example that we have is like grades in school, right? Like we have been measured our whole lives by our grades. So I think like innately we care about them a lot, even though me and you like to act like we don't care at all about the GPA number. Mm-hmm. It's still something that is measuring us all the time. You know what I mean? Sure. So I think that that principle works in reverse too. Like because we're getting measured, it matters to us. Definitely. It, you know, it, we can up, use that same principle going forward with different things that we choose to do, like this podcast. You exactly. Know? Mm-hmm. So when you choose to take something seriously as if it's as serious as your grades or as serious as showing up to work on time, and that's your goal, you you take that same level of care and accountability to something personal, that's when you'll actually start seeing results. I mean, I literally told myself at the beginning of the semester, the only, if I don't get all my food in a day, it's a failed day, right? I mean, I was, I would go on the couch at 9 p.m., no appetite anymore, totally tired, sleep on the couch for two hours, like set a two hour alarm or like 90 minutes, because that's a good sleep interval. Wake up, my roommate would be playing video games. He'd be like, Lewis, time to eat. And I would wake up, house, like can of tuna, couple sleeve of saltines, brush my teeth, go to bed. Like that was my job. If I, I didn't have a job a semester, it's very fortunate to not have to do that. So this was my job. If I didn't eat, I didn't go to work. It was a failed day. Yeah. I remember, you know, a lot of times you're like, dude, I feel like all I do is eat and sleep and eat and sleep. And I was like, it's cause all you do is eat and sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's your second one? So that's a good discussion there. Mm -hmm. So mine is actually very apt in accordance with the coronavirus and and what's happened with school and stuff. And it plays into our podcast too, is it's learning comes from other people, not from lectures or like your teachers in the classroom. It, it learning comes from the interaction between you and those people. So I think that conversations like with your classmates are a lot closer to real world, real world experience than reading or being lectured at is. Sure. Does that make sense? I think what that makes me think of is, you know, Elijah, a friend Elijah. I had all three of my academic classes with Elijah this semester. Like literally every class I had in person, he and I were at them together. So like logically homework together, study together, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And all the learning came from him and I in like a room at this library or in a room in like one of the engineering buildings back and forth. I don't understand this. He's like, well, that's actually something I understand. And explain that to me. Then he would understand something and I'll explain it. Uh, I will counter with the point that there's a lot of situations in the real world where let's say the real working world, like say you're studying for a financial certification or you're working at like a manufacturing plant and they do say on your first day, here's a stack of books. We'll give you projects once you finish them. And that mm-hmm. does happen. Uh, if you need your real estate exam, you need to pass and you need to memorize stuff. You need, you need to like, through the books that happens sometimes but yeah it's not as fun and it's not as effective yeah well for real estate for example like you read all those books and then you get your real estate agent's license let's say 
and then you get out into the real world and you, I mean, you know what the house is made of and, and how to know whether or not it's sturdy, but you're not, you're not going to be good at selling until you do it, you know? And I think that conversations are closer to that real world experience, like conversations around the books that you've read Mm -hmm. than, than just reading, obviously. I I think that kind of makes some more sense about your first point about conversations and having that deeper connection. Cause you know, a fact stays in your memory if it's connected to another fact, right? If it's the more associative thoughts you have for a piece of information, the more likely you are to hold on to it. So when you can associate, you know, a certain algorithm or a certain sales tactic with, Oh, that was when we went to that building and this guy gave me that lecture on it and he was wearing that. And that was right after we got that meal at Chipotle and you know, it was raining really hard. That context helps you kind of work your way back to what actually happened mm-hmm. versus, Oh, that was one of the things I read in an hour long session at the library where I've done a million other sections yeah. and for, forgot a million other things. So when you actually do that one-on-one, first of all, you can just call that person that you talk to and be like, can you re-explain this? Cause you know, there's someone you can go to, but you mm-hmm. also have, Oh, and they made that analogy about, you know, how it's just like this other thing that I totally know because I've known that my whole life. Shout out Rome research. Shout out Rome research network thought. Okay. Well, What's your second one, Lewis? Okay. So my second one is about a group we formed that was kind of the basis of this podcast or one of the basis is that let us actually do it now. We called it like the Junto, just a little mastermind, whereas Kyle and three of his buddies that he had met in the fall semester while studying abroad. And he said, th- we, he thought, let's bring this group of guys together. They're all smart. They're all interested in kind of, you know, self-improvement and business and making money and doing more than just school and kind of being interesting and having good conversations. Let's get a little dinner group together. So Kyle brought us all together. We had, I mean, hit it off right from the start. And then we had a recurring kind of weekly dinner with that same group of people for the remainder of the semester before spring break. And I really enjoyed that. So the lesson here is the value of recurring in-person social interaction. It's imposing social structure on your life to ensure that on a regular basis, you are seeing people you enjoy. And that's just a way to ensure there's a lot of positivity in every week of your life. So my sister, for example, lives in LA and she has like a trivia group. Every Tuesday, her and the same four friends go to the same bar, play pub trivia. And even if she's having a bad week every Tuesday, she has a guaranteed upper. You know, same with us. If I had a hard weekend, I studied, I was boring, whatever. Every Monday night, good dinner, good, like, good time with the boys, gets you refreshed for the week. Same thing, racquetball, Making athletics another way to do it too. I, our friend David Sachs, we had on the first episode, he and I played racquetball just about every Wednesday night. That's the way, first of all, you get your exercise in, uh, you play a sport you enjoy, and you, you know, just hang out with a friend. So very effective way to improve your social life and just interject positivity and good vibes into your life. Yeah, I think, I think it's, if you don't do that, if you don't, if you're, if you're not purposeful about it, it's just so easy to fall out of the habit and you know lose that relationship or or at least like maybe not lose the the person but lose what that relationship used to be like or could have Mm -hmm. been like exactly hadn't gone out of your way to um, measure it and to make sure that you got it done exactly just like chapter at the fraternity you know you see every guy in your house once a week and that's how you all stay friends in addition, or that's how you stay friends with the guys that aren't like in your immediate circle. Mm-hmm. Just things like that. So what's your uh, number three? 
Yeah, number three. So mine is that being early does not matter if you do not act. So Lewis and I were at a coffee shop. Monarch. Shout out Monarch. Shout out Monarch. When my dad called me and told me that I needed to be worried about the coronavirus. It was February 18th. It was literally either the day that was the top of the market or the day before the top of the market. And shortly thereafter, Lewis and I, with conviction, believed that the coronavirus was going to be a big deal. It's going to cancel class. We were telling all of our friends about it. Uh Uh-huh. And the only thing that we did to take advantage of the situation was go to Walmart and get toilet paper and... um, Canned tuna. Canned tuna, some hand sanitizer. Trash bags. And when I got home, you know, a month later, it felt good to be able to pull out all my hand sanitizer that you couldn't buy in the stores anymore. But it would have felt a lot better if we had shorted the market and made a million dollars. Yeah. You know? And um, Or pre-bought the, those anticipate, anticipatory stocks like Zoom and other companies yeah, that were positioned to win. I mean, and I mean plenty of people on Twitter were hyping those up for around that same well, period of time. And toward, toward the end of the semester, I think it might have been my last night, I was you know, at our, one of my friend's houses and someone called me over and they were like, Kyle, like, you're so early. Like, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Or, and one of the guys is like, I don't care about what's going to ha- Like, what did you do, A, to capitalize on that? And B, it doesn't matter what's happened in the past, what's going to happen in the future? So it just like woke me up to the fact that I, I didn't do anything. Like just because I was right doesn't mean that I got anything out of that other than the satisfaction of being right, which in itself is futile. Definitely. One reservation or uh, counter to that, that I listened to on a podcast with Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday talking about kind of that very same thing, right? Tim was one of the earliest movers on cancel South by Southwest. This is really bad. We need to take it very seriously. And he also didn't fully capitalize on it from a financial perspective and kind of the meditation he had on that was it kind of shows your, your humanity that when you have this information about bad stuff's about to happen, all you and I did prepare for was the survival aspect of it. Right. So it kind of shows that your priorities in life are straight. If you have news that, you know, this is about to happen, we need to take it seriously. They're going to cancel classes. There's going to be food shortages. And all we cared about was, okay, well, let's have enough food, let's have enough supplies. And that occupied our thoughts. And it wasn't until after that had set in that we said, oh, how can we capitalize on it? And at that point, the kind of information had kind of dispersed the way that, I mean, there are plenty of opportunities, obviously, even in March to make the money. But we're still, since you're primarily occupied with survival, it's not your top of mind thought to say, how do I capitalize on this? Because we just... We're still at the, how do I get through this kind of yeah. level? Well, it's really easy to, I mean, to look back now mm-hmm. and have the mindset that I have about not being able to capitalize on it financially. You know, it's mm-hmm. like hindsight's twenty twenty, but in the moment we, we really were like buying gas cans. Like we were worried about it when seemingly nobody else was. I don't know if you remember going to Walmart that day, mm-hmm. but like nobody in there was. Everyone roasted me when I came home. They uh-huh. were just like, why do you buy a 50 cans of tuna and trash bags? This thing's just the flu. I'm like, first of all, mark my words when cap classes get canceled. Like, mm-hmm. classes get canceled. I'm like, you know what? It's, it's just like that. It's like, well, we are right, but 
all we have to show for is like an extra thing of hand sanitizer. So I Which think the, the lesson there nice to have. has been nice to have, but the lesson is if you do have an information asymmetry or just you have some information advantage, don't let that go to waste. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Don't let that go to waste. I will say I successfully executed an information advantage around that same time. And right around when I was packing up to come home for spring break, so early March, late February, I saw the Bitcoin dip, knew about the halving, and said, this is not priced in yet. People, like the general public, the people that always hop into Bitcoin when there's exciting news about it, not that follow it religiously, not that I even follow it religiously, mm. when the halving happens or in anticipation of it, there's going to be a pop. So I put in like 500 bucks. And I'm like, my goal is to make enough money to buy AirPod Pros from Bitcoin because that sounds funny. Making enough magic Bitcoin money to buy new pair <laughs> of headphones. I, I uh, believe you're there now, right? You bought in at like 36 something? I bought in... At like 6,000 or like 5,500 oh, okay, average. Okay. And I sold it all yesterday at 9,300. Locked in 280 bucks in profit. That's AirPods with tax. That is exactly enough to buy AirPod Pros. And that could be another lesson too, like satisfying versus maximizing. Because now it's at 9,800 today. I sold it at 9,300 yesterday. Could have made an extra 10%, but it could also have crashed today. It's all I about reached, locking it in. I reached my goal and took my wins, you know? Well, if it, if Bitcoin goes to the roof in a week, whatever, I, I still got what I wanted. You know, I think it might go to the roof though. What, what, when is the halving? What day? The 14th, maybe? 13th. 13th. Okay. I think the, the thing about that, and I mean, we're making predictions about something that's a week out, so we're going to immediately get feedback as to whether or not we're right, is I think the volume of traders that know about the halving and have known about it for months and are planning to expect the bubble and then sell out is going to outweigh the amount of Bitcoin hobbyists coming into the market. Maybe not in terms of number of people, but in terms of volume of trading, like the amount of money on both sides, that it's actually going to net not be that big of a deal. I think that like, is a good way of looking at it, but I think that it's not... How do I say this? It's not linear, the number of people that are buying into Bitcoin when it's rising. Like if Bitcoin, let's say, goes to 15,000 tomorrow, mm -hmm. a huge number of people are going to begin to buy into it. it it's like the, the bubble idea of it, you know? Definitely. Like when it was running to 20,000 in 2017, I was watching it really closely. And I can remember like going into a restaurant and hearing a bunch of people talking about crypto. Yep. Like it's not, it's not linear, the amount of people that are buying in. So if it, I think that that makes sense right now, but I don't know if the number of like real investors in crypto, mm -hmm. I don't know if it'll keep up. Well, it's a matter of, it's a matter of, it's like how I break it down is, so let's say, all those people that you think it's a huge amount of people. And I agree with you, right? They're going to see a intent mm -hmm. and they're going to say, shit, I got to get in. Mm -hmm. I don't think that average person who does that is going to even put in more than 100, 200 bucks. Yeah. Okay. But if it's, the question is if it's 10 million people putting in at 100, 200 bucks versus a hundred thousand dedicated people, do those hundred thousand people have an average of 10,000 or an average of a hundred thousand? And it depends and, on the volumes on both sides. And what I'm saying is, yeah, like the, the acceleration to, higher prices means that there will be a um, higher number of people putting in that $100 and $200 buy-in, like you were saying, like a lot more. 
with however fast it moves. Yeah. So we'll see. I guess we'll see who's right about that. Uh, yeah. We're also very <laughs> unqualified and have no idea, really. But is anyone qualified? That's a good point. Number three. I'm going to my number three now, which is two-parter based on a video Matt Davell put out that kind of really reshaped my thinking about side projects, personal projects, content creation. He put out a video called The Two-Year Rule, where he kind of discussed his philosophy for creating his YouTube channel. He said when he started out, basically, he had enough money saved up to support himself for two years. So his plan was to make videos one a week or whatever it was for two years. And then at that point, he would determine success or failure, keep going. And I think for personal projects or starting a side business, that is such a better way of approaching it than the alternative, right? The alternative is, okay, I've got enough money for a couple months. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to start making videos. And the big difference here is you're reformatting or you're reorienting the feedback cycle. So do you let instant feedback, your results in the moment, day to day, determine if you continue or do you just make it no matter what for two years and then look at the feedback after kind of the short run volatility unpredictability has kind of taken hold. So when you commit for two years and say, this is what we're doing no matter what, you actually give yourself the chance to not look at analytics, not obsess over 10% jumps either way, not obsess over a week or a bad video where you got no impact because by the time two years play out, you'll probably have a decent idea as if as to whether or not what you're producing has any value. But within 30 days, within 60 days, no, you just don't because the unpredictable aspect of it and the compounding effects and the way things play out on the internet where it's kind of random, which ones win and which ones lose helps that. So I think that's a really healthy approach. So if you say you want to start a blog or something, don't just say, I'm going to start a blog and start a website. I'm going to start paying 15 bucks a month for uh, all the hosting and domains and stuff like that. And then 30 days in, you've put out four articles and you're like, I don't know about this. I'm not really seeing that much traction that's an unproductive way of going about it versus you're just going to say, okay, until I've put out 25 articles, I haven't given this a real effort mm-hmm. and I can't determine success or failure until that point. And that's kind of what inspired Kyle and I to start the podcast making some sort of, I don't know what our agreement was. I think we said something like we haven't given this a solid effort unless it was we 15 till April 3rd. Well, that 15. was a goal. That wasn't saying success or oh. failure. That was like, let's put out 15 by the end of April or something like that, which we were close okay. to. But yeah, I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying, but I, I just thought that was a benchmark for us. But that was a benchmark, but not like this. What do you remember? I thought we said something like until we've put out either it was 25 or 50 episodes, we haven't given it like a proper mm-hmm. effort. And that's exactly. I mean, I talked about this in an article I put out on Medium about positive constraints, right? Tim Ferriss, when he started his podcast, said, "I'm going to put out six episodes and decide if I want to continue. Not, I'm going to put out one, or I'm going to start podcasting, but it's a very specific closed project." So Kyle and I kind of said. Until we've put out either 25 or 50 episodes, we don't really know if we've given this a proper effort. Yeah. And after that, we'll reevaluate as to whether or not what we're doing is something that we should continue to do. Definitely. Because up until that point, we haven't given it a, the the number we we haven't accomplished what we wanted to accomplish and B we haven't given enough, enough time to become something that we want to continue until that point. Exactly. So that's my, that's my third one. I think mm-hmm. Kyle hit your third. Do you have any bonus ones? I actually do have a few bonus ones. We'll do them rapid fire. Yeah. So my first one I'll go with, it is all about people. Lewis and I together did a thing called the Crimson Entrepreneurship Academy last summer. This is something that, that has been building over time. 
but we had a different entrepreneur every week or so that would come and talk to us. And every single person that came and talked to us would say how it was all about people. At some point in their talk, they would talk about how what they cared about actually was the people that they were around and they were working with. And, you know, I, I followed that thread through the first semester. And then this last semester, we, I was in a, a taxation accounting class. And these people came who were like working at big four accounting firms. And all the students were asking them different questions about, you know, what is their job like? What, what is it like to, to be you? You know, what is it a, a day in the life like? And every question led back to, they don't really care about the, the work as much as they care about the investment in the people around them and how, you know, they didn't like New York city because the people were this way and they didn't, they love this place because the people were this way. They love, they love this job because they get to be more people oriented. And that just, it kind of goes along with what I said at the beginning, right? It's just, it's more about the the human aspect of of everything than you actually think it is. I completely agree. I mean, there's a good point I can add to that from, you know, The Third Door. It's a book Kyle and I both read. We talked about it in the Five Books episode. I released a blog post discussing my favorite takeaways from it. Had a little bit of interaction with the author, not a ton. But his whole takeaway in that book, which was, you know, his journey to go out and interview the best people in the world, was every time he successfully convinced one of those people to take on an interview or convinced a gatekeeper to let them interview their boss was when it was an in-person. His email conversion was terrible. His cold call conversion wasn't that good, but he could say if, if he got in the same room as the gatekeeper or as the person and then had his pitch and had the eye contact, he almost, they almost always said, they almost always said yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess I'll just run through these last two. One, another one is the power of accountability with goals. So, you know, I have not been very fit the last few years and it's something that I care about deeply and I've gotten a lot of, a lot of personal enjoyment out of getting fit when I was younger, when I was like 13, I lost 50 pounds and, you know, it, it changed my life, but, and it's something that I want to get back to. So I set an accountability partner where I'm working out five days a week for 30 minutes and I just basically said to him, you know, will you keep me accountable? And he said, yes. So I'd tell him whether or not I completed that. And if I don't complete it, then it's like, I'm just being a dick and wasting his time. Exactly. So that uh, puts accountability on me to get it done, which exactly. it has been working. Yeah. yeah. And this guy is kind of a mentor figure for Kyle. Kyle has a lot. He wants to learn from this guy. Uh, he's been successful in business and Kyle wants to, Kyle values his relationship with this person, obviously. Mm -hmm. So by saying, I'm going to do this and then failing to do it, Kyle would effectively communicate to this guy, I don't follow through on my word. I make commitments yeah. I don't keep. Exactly. And then, and then it's like lose, putting skin in the game. Exactly. Right? Then lose like the trust or lose the credibility with someone who he really values that person's advice and knowledge. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of high stakes, high stakes. Exactly. And so Kyle's but gonna work out. Because <laughs> That's so the moral. You know, yeah. And it's because it's so important to me to do that. I needed external pressure. And then the last one um, that I have here is everybody talks about soft skills, you know, in every class. It's like, well, it's, it's, it's a kind of a soft skill. Like you just got to kind of know what it is. And 
but nobody can properly define them okay. that I've found. And if they do define them, the d- definitions are different. So it's like this huge piece of the working world is soft skills. And that's what people like to move people up in companies for. It's, it's very important. And nobody really knows what it is. Yeah. That's, that's a takeaway. That's kind of a question. That's a, that's a question. Not a, <laughs> that, that was not a very conclusive. Uh, well, that's why it was my last one. You just interjected a more mystery into soft skills. We just did an episode with uh, Martin Pelkey, who does leadership evaluation, talent management, soft skill evaluation for Mercedes-Benz Daimler. And we had him talk about it a little bit. And I think he gave some more, not, he gave some good answers, I thought, about how you go about doing those things or how you go about evaluating them. Because if someone's taking initiative, you can point to projects that they've done and taken initiative on. Well, they were good answers because it's a good thing to have soft skills. And it's good to evaluate people who have really good soft skills because they're good with people. Yeah. But the point is that there's no, like, there's no one example of soft skills that you can give somebody in a book for them to learn how to do it. I kind of disagree with that. Okay. I love disagreement. Oh yeah. Kyle loves confrontation, but yeah, there's not the soft skills manual, even though I guarantee that's a book called the soft skills manual. (laughs) If it's not, we should write it. (laughs) But there is the guide to public speaking. There is the guide to like how to, how how to influence and influence. Exactly. There's public speaking. There's each soft skill that can be isolated as its own soft skill has paths. To but I wouldn't call I wouldn't call public speaking a soft skill because it is a thing that you can learn that is definable, and everybody who listens to public speaking knows whether or not it was a good public speech. Okay. I think that soft skills are more undefined purposefully and that's the point of what i'm saying right is that like soft skills is how you make people feel when you talk to them i think but now now i'm defining them and we're gonna have a disagreement and that's also the point is that nobody knows what they are there's no no one soft skill soft skills is a category that Uh is a like umbrella term it's a general term for I guess in general, interpersonal, not extremely isolated skill sets, but I disagree with the fact that there's not a clear path to improving at any one of them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think you can get better at any single one of them based on uh, kind of what I was saying earlier, making a plan. So if your plan is to, if you have more conversations with people and your intention is to have a bigger impact and be more emotional, you can learn how to speak better. You can practice these things. You can get coaching for any amount of any of these skills. Okay, so, I agree with that. When people say the term, yeah, you need to have soft skills for this job, that's on them. That's them being lazy if we're saying we want you to get along with the team. And all of those things you can make a conscious effort to get better at. Okay, so you just say in your like calendar, get lunch with a different person from the team every day. And right there. That's all you need to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And that can be broken down for any one of those things. My last takeaway here before we bicker anymore about soft skills. Yeah, I didn't mean to make that last and so You're controversial. Good. You're good. <laughs> it's completely different and very straightforward. Fiction at night, nonfiction in the day. That's all. Fiction at night, nonfiction in the day. When you're reading books, read fiction at night, helps you sleep, you go somewhere else, 
you kind of enjoy it. It's a nice break. Nonfiction gets you thinking about improving your life or starting a business or how you're going to go about this or how you're going to learn that or how you're going to apply this. And that's not good to think about right before you go to sleep because it's activating your mind and making you anxious, excited, whatever, mm-hmm. anti-sleep emotions. Fiction yeah. at night, nonfiction in the day. I agree with that. When I read uh, nonfiction at night, it makes it impossible for me to fall asleep. Because you're going to go grab your phone and you're going to go text me about what you read about and I'm going to text you what I read about and we're going to talk about it. Or I just lay in bed and can only think about the words that were on the pages. But yeah, yeah both. For don't, sure, read, both. don't read self-help books at night, the end. Period. So that's the semester. I passed all my classes. Kyle? I got three A's and two P's. There you uh, go. Yeah. I gained weight. I lost weight. Uh, net 10 pounds heavier. Like to say it's mostly lean. I feel a lot healthier being at home and having a just being at home versus being at college i think has led me to a healthier lifestyle you know better sleep darker better sleep better sleep less drama yeah i mean there's not really much drama at college for me but there's like no drama in my house ever so it's like i don't know it's all it's a very healthy environment for me at home which happy for you very nice good for me and i think the same for you right yeah definitely Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Lewis and Kyle show. What's typically an interview podcast, but sometimes Kyle and I just want to talk to each other because we're friends and think <laughs> what we have might have some value to other people. And if you want to support us, the best way for you to do that is to take a listen, subscribe and tell a friend about the show. Point them to an episode you think they like rather than sending them with no direction because that gives a better chance of them actually liking the show. Uh, if you really want to be a super bro, you can leave a rating or review on iTunes, five stars preferably, but whatever you feel is fair. Uh, just messing around. Tell us what you think. Leave a comment, follow us on social media, give us ideas, recommend us on an interview, whatever you want to do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple days with another one. <laughs>